This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. Since 1989, West Virginia University scientists have been studying the environmental effects of acid rain. We've designed a number of activities to bring the students out into the field, have them collect real data, and actually learn about all the science that's going right on in their backyard that they just aren't aware of. That story and more coming up this West Virginia Morning. Support for West Virginia Morning is proudly provided by Luke Frazier. The West Virginia Department of Health and Human Resources says it is actively trying to fill dozens of staff vacancies before the department is divided into three separate agencies. During Sunday's interim committee meetings in Wheeling, Interim Secretary Dr. Sherry Young told lawmakers 171 vacancies remain open within the DHHR's Bureau for Public Health. Most of the vacancies are for nursing and social work positions, people who are expected to retire within the next five years. Young expressed concern about the loss of institutional knowledge of DHHR programs and how that will affect work in the future. She said while the agency is actively recruiting, officials are also trying to decide whether or not to keep certain positions. The DHHR will split into three separate agencies on January 1st. Those agencies include the Department of Health, the Department of Human Services, and the Department of Health Facilities. Motorists in Huntington in the Huntington area will find it slow going on Interstate 64 this week. According to a release from the Department of Transportation, Exit 6 will be closed to traffic from 8 p.m. to 8.6 a.m. from November 13th to 17th. Crews will be working on the U.S. 52 James River Road Overpass Bridge Project. The work will include shoulder strengthening and temporary ramp tie-ins to existing roadways. Detour signs will use U.S. 60 and Interstate Exit 15 at the 29th Street. The inside lanes of the bridge will close after construction is completed. The Exit 6 eastbound ramp will be stop-controlled. The holidays can be a stressful time, but dementia can make it even more difficult. For his series, Getting Into Their Reality, Caring for Aging Parents, News Director Eric Douglas spoke with Teresa Morris, Program Director for the West Virginia Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, to get some ideas for families who are working to include someone with dementia into their celebrations. Let's talk about the holidays. Um, We've got Thanksgiving. We've got Christmas. We've got Hanukkah. We've got all kinds of reason families are together. What should you do? What should a caregiver know and do to adjust things to help out? I mean, so we know that, I mean, holidays are challenging for everyone. Anyway, yeah. Anyways. And then if you throw someone in that, you know, has dementia, you know, I think the biggest thing is we – as caregivers, we have to remember that we have to adjust our expectation of what the time is going to be like. I mean, you can still have fun. You can still have a fantastic celebration, but it's probably not going to be 
the same. Um, you know, you want to try to check in with the person that has the disease. You know, how you doing? Are you okay? Um, you know, you want to focus on things that bring happiness, you know, and, and, and letting go of maybe activities that are overwhelming to the person with the disease. I know my family, at least, you know, our celebrations are loud. That might be something you have to take a look at and, and maybe change that a little bit. You know? I, I remember reading somewhere, somebody talking about just not having the whole family over or, yes. or having them come in small groups. Small groups, or yes. Yeah. Um, you know, those are, those are great ideas, you know, to, just to try to limit that stimulation, that overstimulation. You know, even if you can somehow have a quiet room, you know, maybe people at different times go in there to, to speak to the person with the disease. Um, you just want to try to lower their stress. Mm-hmm. Um, because I promise it will lower your stress as well. <laughs> well yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and we also just want to think about keeping the person with the disease on a familiar routine. You know, if if they eat lunch every day at 12, then you don't want to have your dinner at 2. You know, you want to try to keep that schedule for them. Um you know, and, and, and make sure that other family members or people coming in know that, you know, mom is having some trouble with, with her word finding. It might take her longer to, you know, answer. You know, she might not think of the word. Always want these folks to feel a, a, a sense of self throughout the disease. It's important that we don't just go, oh, mom has Alzheimer's. She can't help us anymore. Put her in a corner. Right. Because they still they still want to feel connected. You know, on some level, mom probably knows she always makes the mashed potatoes. You know, so those types of things. Um, and, and again, just just involve her or him, you know, as much as you can. Maybe maybe they can put the napkins on the tea or on the table. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, you said it earlier, but I think that point of. Lowering expectations that yes. that this isn't going to be the way we did it. We've we've done it this way for twenty years, and and uh, the kids sang and no, that's right. That's overload for most of us anyway. But it's it is it, it, it is definitely overload for somebody who's not processing things exactly. So you have to take the perspective of the person with the disease. It's very different than what my or your perspective would be. The person with the disease, they can't change. You know, they've lost the ability to problem solve, to, to, to sequence, to even speak sometimes. Um, so it's on us as caregivers to, to change our interaction. That was Teresa Morris from the West Virginia chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, speaking with Eric Douglas about adjusting holiday celebrations to include family with dementia. This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. It's 7.50. Patchy fog this morning, becoming mostly sunny today. Highs in the 50s and low 60s. Clear skies tonight with lows in the 40s. And sunny tomorrow with highs in the 50s. Support for WVPB is provided by Solar Holler, making clean energy available to West Virginia homeowners of all income levels. More at solarholler.com.
Since 1989, West Virginia University scientists have been studying the environmental effects of acid rain in the Fernow Experimental Forest in Tecker County. COVID-19 pandemic restrictions forced the long-term experiment to change in recent years, and researchers are now inviting local students to take part in the project's next phase. Reporter Chris Schultz sat down with WVU biology professor Edward Brosick to discuss the changes. If you could start us off by telling me in your own words about this project. We've been working at a long-term research site in Tucker County, West Virginia, called the Fernow Experimental Forest. Starting in 1989, they did an experiment where they were artificially acidifying a whole forest watershed to mimic what was coming out of coal-fired power plants and leading to acid rain across the region. We learned a lot of different things about how the forest responded to that acidification. One of the things we learned is that the nitrogen actually led to the trees growing faster. Um, There was some bad things, though. These forests also leaked more nitrogen because they were getting more nitrogen inputs and they just couldn't hold on to it. So a lot of it leached into waterways, which can impact water quality. In 2020, we couldn't get the helicopter or the airplane to fly. and And then there was also a lapse in funding. And so the experiment, we stopped adding nitrogen and sulfur to the watershed anymore. And so we thought of this actually as a great opportunity. And one of the things that this mimics is actually the success of the Clean Air Act. So the Clean Air Act reduced nitrogen and sulfur emissions, and they're almost negligible to these forest ecosystems now. And so what we're really interested in is, okay, if we stop having this pollution coming into the forest, do the good effects, which is the enhanced carbon storage in the trees and the soils, are they maintained or do we lose them? And then are the bad effects, do those also, do we keep having those bad effects or do they go away quickly? So do you have any hypotheses that you're working on at the moment? So we have a hypothesis for how the forest responded. What it really relies on is that forests are somewhat like people and trees are somewhat like people. They're going to spend their cash or in this case carbon on what they need the most. And so when you have nitrogen going into a forest, the trees aren't going to spend as much carbon in the soil. So they're going to make less roots. They're going to send less carbon to their root friends, their symbiotic fungi, or also bacteria that live right around the roots. And so basically, they're investing less carbon to get nitrogen. And so by doing that, what that means is the tree can grow more above ground. And because you don't have that carbon going into the soil, it's not fueling the microbes as much. And so what our main hypothesis is moving forward, as the nitrogen stops being dumped on the forest, what we're going to have is the trees are going to be sending more carbon below ground to their roots and their microbial friends. That's going to restart decomposition, and it's going to lead to potential soil carbon losses. While at the same time, we might see reductions in tree growth above ground because the trees are now limited by the amount of nitrogen that's in the soil. You mentioned that this you know, long-term study has helped you understand the impacts of the Clean Air Act. Why was it necessary to set this up as a more controlled study when you could just go out and do field research in, in any of the other forests of, of the state? We can go out and we can do observational studies, and folks have done these across the entire eastern seaboard. But one thing you, when you're looking at 
there's observational data, it's hard to think about other factors that could lead to differences in growth or in soil carbon or other things that could impact your data. So by having a controlled experiment, you can isolate other confounding factors like climate or tree species or where you are or the soils or the bedrock. And you can actually delve into what the actual mechanisms are. So that's why having the controlled experiment really lets you kind of get rid of all the noise and be able to look at, okay, what is actually driving this? Is it the microbes? Is it the symbiotic fungi? Is it the trees? One of the things that jumped out to me was the inclusion of K-12 students and specifically middle school students in this project. Can you tell me a little bit about why you all chose to target that specific group? The Fresnel is located in Tucker County, and many of those students that they live right in the backdrop of that, the Fresnel Experimental Forest, and they don't have any real knowledge of what the science that goes on there or what the important findings that we have found at that site. And so one of the things we did in this project is we designed a number of activities to bring the students out into the field, have them collect real data, have them analyze that data, and and actually learn about all this science that's going right on in their backyard that they just aren't aware of. So can you tell me a little bit more about what you've designed for these students? You know, we're going to start off going into the classroom and do a couple of different classroom activities where we give them some of the data on tree growth. We can walk them through graphing and just looking at that data and seeing, okay, yes, nitrogen led to these trees growing faster. Um, moving forward, what we'd like to do is we're gonna bring the students out into the Fresnel and lead them on a field trip where they're gonna collect actual data. But the other thing that we can do, some simple litter decomposition experiments. So it's, it's both collecting observational data and then having the students do some simple experiments in the field where all you need to do is put a leaf in some window screening and then have its initial, you know, weigh it at the beginning and then weigh it after, you know, weigh it six months later to see how fast microbial decomposition occurred. That was Edward Brosick speaking with Chris Schultz about the next phase of a decades-long forest experiment in Tucker County. You can find the transcript of this interview on our website at wvpublic.org. West Virginia Morning is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, which is solely responsible for its content. You can keep up with the latest West Virginia news throughout the day on our website, wvpublic.org. Support for our news bureaus comes from Shepherd University. West Virginia Morning is produced with help from Bill Lynch, Brianna Heaney, Caroline McGregor, Chris Schultz, Curtis Tate, Emily Rice, Eric Douglas, Liz McCormick, and Randy Yowie. Caroline McGregor is our assistant news director, and she produced today's show. I'm your host, Teresa Wills. This is West Virginia Morning. Mm-hmm.